Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a spike in inflation of 6.2% over the past 12 months, the fastest rise since 1990, which will likely be seized upon by Republicans who have already coined the term Bidenflation. Joining us is Catherine Russ, a professor of economics at the University of California, Davis, who worked for the Obama administration's Council of Economic Advisers as senior economist for international trade and finance. She has been a visiting scholar at the central banks of Germany, Portugal and France and the Federal Reserve Banks of St. Louis and San Francisco. And we will discuss the exaggerated alarm at inflation from stimulus programs, which will end up reducing inflation and a call by economist Joseph Stieglitz for Fed Chairman Powell to be replaced, which Catherine considers misguided and mistaken. Then, with the draft agreement emerging from the COP26 talks in Glasgow that climate activists are dismissing as, quote, a polite request, we will speak with Michael Girard, a professor of professional practice at Columbia Law School, where he teaches courses on environmental law, climate change law, and energy regulation, and is the director of the Sabine Center for Climate Change Law. He has written or edited 13 books, including Global Climate Change and U.S. Law, the leading work in its field, and the 12-volume Environmental Law Practice Guide, and his latest book is Legal Pathways to Deep Decarbonization in the United States. He joins us to discuss the draft agreement, which is too little too late, and what can be done to meet the challenge when world governments are falling short. Then finally, with prosecutors around the world now seeking murder charges for fentanyl deaths, targeting dealers selling fentanyl-laced counterfeit pills on Snapchat and Instagram to teenagers who are dying in droves, we will speak with Sam Canonis, a journalist, author and storyteller. His books include Dreamland, A True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic, and his latest book just out is The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. And we will discuss this deadly new epidemic of synthetic drugs at a time when drug traffickers act like corporations and corporations like traffickers. And before we go to our first guest, while Background Briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can... Help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Catherine Russ, who is a professor of economics at the University of California, Davis, who worked for the Obama administration's Council of Economic Advisers as a senior economist for international trade and finance. She is a faculty research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, International Trade and Investment Group, and she has been a visiting scholar at the central banks of Germany, Portugal and France, and the Federal Reserve Banks of St. Louis and San Francisco. Welcome to Background Briefing, Catherine Russ. Oh, thanks for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's a lot of alarm at the spike in inflation. Overall prices rose by 6.2% over the past uh, 12 months, which is the fastest pace since 1990. And we can go through the sectors that are being affected by inflation. But of course, it's become a very much a political issue, particularly with Senator Manchin, who's been pretty much controlling the fate of the infrastructure and social infrastructure packages that Biden and the Democrats are trying to pass, and he's warned a lot about inflation. So the Fed tries to keep it at 2% annual gains, but now it's spiking. So are you alarmed? Because I I can guarantee you the Republicans are going to make hay out of it. Sorry, I'm just laughing at the joke about making hay. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is very apropos. Um, so inflation, um, as you said, is 6.2%. There are a number of factors that are adding together to, to generate this 
sort of eye-popping number. As you say, um, it's been a while since we've seen inflation this high. But I think it's important to to really take into account the context. So while inflation itself might not be a desirable thing, it's a sign that good things are happening in the economy. We just had one of the worst downturns in history last year. This is a sign that the economy is bouncing back in, 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 in a very strong way. So this is a hot economy is what inflation is telling us right now. I think it's also important to put inflation in a little bit longer term context. So if we look at the 12 month change, then yes, inflation is 4.6%, but the prices on a lot of goods and services had actually fallen during the pandemic. So if we take the 24 month change to compare the price level now to a more normal time in history, then uh, inflation is, is not um, quite so eye-popping. And if we look at core CPI inflation, so minus food and energy, which is usually the things macroeconomists look at to kind of gauge how the economy is chugging along, then core CPI inflation, if we look at 12-month, it's 4.6%, but 24-month is 3.1%. So it's actually much lower if you look at the numbers over a 24-month period, which I think is a, a much more sensible way to think about how prices are rising right now. We don't want to measure them from the trough during the pandemic. We want to measure them from a, norm, a more normal time in our economic history. And so if we do that, then we see that inflation, you know, it's still elevated. It's above the 2% target that the Fed usually um, shoots for, but it's not a crazy level. And I think if we look at the reasons why it's happening, there are a couple. So first, people are demanding a lot more goods and services all at once as the economy bounces back from that dramatic downturn during the pandemic. So you can see that energy is actually contributing a lot to the increase in the overall price level. So energy itself as a category, um, prices are up 30% overall over the year and nearly 50% for gasoline. And this also contributes to inflation in food prices. Because if you think about how much transportation, refrigeration contributes to food prices, then that also can be kind of fueling those uh, elevated food prices. So why is energy going up? It's because you know, everyone's wanting to use it all at once now. So all the factories are starting back up again. Everybody's starting to approach their full capacity again. Everybody's wanting goods. Uh, so that requires a lot of transport, which requires energy. So this is a sign that things are really heating up in the economy. It's a picture of recovery. We also see demand for cars uh, high as people start going back to work and traveling again, and that's contributed to higher prices in the auto sector, which has also contributed to the, these overall numbers in inflation. Um, and we still see some backups in distribution networks and supply chains from the dramatic shift toward demand for goods rather than services during the pandemic. So during the pandemic, I'm sure you're aware, we started spending a lot more of our money on goods than on services, which demanded more in-person uh, interaction, uh, which wasn't po possible or wasn't as advisable during the, the worst days of the pandemic and when we had lockdowns and so forth. So that shift toward goods um, at the same time that factories were and in other parts of the world still are experiencing pandemic-related disruptions to operations because the rest of the world is not vaccinated yet like much of the United States is, um, that can create some bottlenecks in fulfilling orders, so on the supply side, but then also in transporting goods into the U.S. And I'm, I'm sure most, most of your listeners have heard of the backups at ports or, or shortages uh, in trucking services and so forth. And then finally, we have the overall increase in demand because people have more cash in their wallets. So there have been some big rescue packages um, that have been injected into the economy. So basically injecting cash into households, bank accounts. And so that money is you know, going into overall elevated demand for goods and services. And so even though that's causing some increases in uh, prices, that's generally what we think of as, a, as a, a good thing, that people have cash and are spending it because of this government assistance to help the economy recover from the, this really huge shock of the pandemic. 
And again, I'm speaking with Catherine Russ, who's a professor of economics at the University of California, Davis, who worked for the Obama administration's Council of Economic Advisors as a senior economist for international trade and finance. And she's been a visiting scholar at the central banks of Germany, Portugal, and France, and the Federal Reserve Banks of St. Louis and San Francisco. Well, I mentioned just in terms of the politics, Katie, the the Republicans have already come up with a term, Bidenflation. So he's getting hammered. And a lot of things he doesn't have control over. I mean, I know he wants to do something about food prices, particularly the spike in uh, meat, uh, particularly beef and pork. But that's due in large part to the monopolies, Smithfield and J&B, the Brazilian company, that are in the meatpacking business. The people who grow the beef and the, and the pork the farmers, they're getting screwed, but the meatpacking people are making out like bandits. So that's one factor. And the 49.6% rise in gasoline prices in October of this year alone, a lot of that is to do with Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of uh, Saudi Arabia, the guy that murders and dismembers his opponents. He obviously is at odds with Biden because Biden won't talk to him. And Biden alluded in a recent town hall meeting on CNN that <laughs> it's MBS. Normally the Saudis, the deal that we have supporting this horrible medieval kingdom and its one family rule is that they are the swing producers and whenever gasoline prices go up and OPEC uh, squeezes the market, the Saudis can pump, they have a swing capacity to pump a lot of oil and that lowers the price. But MBS is refusing to help Biden out for political reasons, and he's probably helping Trump because they're close buddies. So there are a number of factors out there beyond Biden's control, it would seem to me. So there are structural issues in some of these key markets that when demand goes up, so we're ta- you know when the economy heats up and demand is high, they can leverage their market power more. And it did raise eyebrows for me anyway, looking at September inflation, um, when you see meat prices going up 10, 20% as compared to other food prices, which were much more subdued in their growth. And so when we go back and we think about the very high concentration of uh, the meatpacking industry, so just a handful of uh, Meat processors are processing, you know, 80% of meat in the country. Um, then those industries do have some incentive to leverage their market power during times like this when demand is is higher. There's no question. And the administration actually did start looking into concentration in the meatpacking industry and start to think about measures that they could take to encourage more competition and decentralization in uh, the meat processing industry. So we'll see how that plays out over time. It takes some time for these sorts of things to take root, though. You mentioned the budget and spending. I think that's a really interesting issue because people um, have been saying, oh, well, if we go ahead and increase government spending now, isn't that just going to make inflation worse? And if you think about how much the spending will increase on an annual basis, it's really not enough to feed those inflation fires. Um, I mean, what's really fueling the inflation right now is these broader structural shifts um, that I was just mentioning. This this incremental increase in government spending is not, and the, the Council of Economic Advisors puts out an analysis on this. I think they even had a tweet on it today, um, breaking that out for people. So it's pretty well known that the proposals on the table are not expected to fuel inflation in the short term. In the long term, they can actually mitigate or prevent inflationary pressures because they expand capacity in the economy. They expand the um, human capital in the workforce. They uh, may encourage investment. Um, So these things expand capacity in the economy when what we're seeing right now is price increases because we're running up against some capacity constraints in the economy as demand increases with the recovery from the pandemic. So in the last few minutes, Katie, let's talk a little about the article in the, The Guardian by Joseph Stieglitz, why the Federal Reserve Chair 
Jerome Powell must go. And, of course, Joe Stieglitz was the chair of the U.S. President's Council on Economic Advisors under Clinton. He kind of got overruled by Larry Summers and, and Robert Rubin. And, of course, we know that they got rid of the Glass-Steagall Act and that Chairman Greenspan was reappointed uh, and then Bernanke and obviously Joe Stieglitz thinks that those were terrible mistakes because obviously Greenspan's, in fact, he writes in his article in The Guardian that Reagan fired Paul Volcker in 1987, denying him reappointment after he had tamed inflation. And Reagan owed Volcker a great deal, but because he wanted to pursue deregulation, he opted for Greenspan, an acolyte of Ayn Rand, and then Clinton reappointed him, and that sort of laissez-faire attitude of Greenspan's contributed to 2008 crash, did it not, along with getting rid of Glass-Steagall? So, Jay Powell has been a very cool and level-headed public servant uh, since he was appointed. One of the main criticisms in this article that you're referring to by Stiglitz criticizing Powell says that he does not have a deep commitment to full employment. So you're talking about a, a, a Fed chair who has presided over some of the most accommodative or supportive monetary policy in history. Um, so I believe he does have a deep commitment to the dual mandate of price stability and full employment. Um, he's also overseen a lot of cultural changes inside the Fed. So um, some of them were started by Janet Yellen, and then he's continued or expanded or, or deepened these. So you might have heard of the Fed Listens Tour, where the Fed actually went and spent a year speaking extremely intensively with all kinds of private sector, um, academic, uh, public sector stakeholders to really think about the Fed's mission and how they could pursue that dual mandate of full employment and full inflation. Also think about climate risk and how that should inform the Fed's operations. Also think about um, issues of social justice and how that should uh, maybe inform the Fed's operations both inside the building and outside the building. So you're actually talking about a level-headed and, and moderate person in terms of economic policy, but really someone who seems to be quite progressive in his own thinking. So the way that he thinks about um, social justice inside the Fed, the way that he is running basically um, accommodative monetary policy during a time, as you said, of uh, elevated inflation means he clearly has a commitment to full employment. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't see how you can have inflation. <laughs> I mean, they, they think about a different measure for inflation, but you know, we, ha we have CPI inflation, as you said, over 6%, and, and people are saying he doesn't have a commitment to full employment. That, that just doesn't seem logical to me. Well, that's, uh, you know, I mean, remember, Donald Trump tried to fire uh, Powell. So if Trump is against you, then I'm for you. <laughs> so I don't quite understand why Joe Stieglitz says in his article in The Guardian, we need neither an ideologue like Greenspan or a Wall Street-minded lawyer such as Powell. And he recommends Lael Bernard should replace him. So I take it, Katie, you don't think that uh, Powell is a problem. Definitely not. And Powell has a very nuanced view of the banking sector. So I saw a speech he gave uh, a few years ago at a conference of community bankers. And he had a real concern, a real understanding of the both the benefits that community banking brings to communities, but also the challenges that community and regional banks face in um, the, the sort of post financial crisis environment. Um, and he also listened uh, really carefully. He's a super open-minded person. Um, he's gone in without a PhD. And I watched him since he was a governor, so before he was chair. And he's just very circumspect. He really um, looks for information, for research, for uh, evidence-based recommendations, um, where, you know, in places where he's not maybe as um, deeply trained as some of the PhD economists. He's very careful. 
And he, he makes up his mind based on the evolving evidence. He's not afraid to change his mind. He's not afraid to recalibrate his opinions. He's a very thoughtful person. And if I'm not sure if there's time, but I have a little anecdote I would love to share about him with you. Go ahead. So there was a remarkable moment at our national um, economics meeting. So it's where all you know thousands of economists converge every year on the American Economics Association meetings in January. It was a couple of years ago, and he was up on stage, and the question was posed for him. And this was at the time where he was getting a lot of fire from the White House, and, and people wondered if he might get fired. Um, this is Trump trying to fire him, right? It, it was, yes. And so, the, you know, and there's a lot of what they call Fed speak going on and diplomacy and all of this. And then finally, the moderator just asked him point blank, if the president uh, tells you to resign, will you do it? And there was a very dramatic sort of silence as everyone held their breath waiting to hear what he would say. And he just said no. He gave a one-word answer, no. I mean, this is a man who's come under so much fire, who's been level-headed throughout, who's really just thought about what will help the American economy and how to keep you know, a, a, a stable financial system. Uh, he's, he's a very committed public servant, and I think he's a progressive at heart, even though I know he's been a Republican in his politics. Well, Catherine Russ, I thank you so much for your unique insight here and for joining us here today. Appreciate it very much. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Ian. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Catherine Russ, who's a professor of economics at the University of California, Davis, who worked for the Obama administration's Council of Economic Advisors as a senior economist for international trade and finance. She is a faculty research associate in the National Bureau of Economic Research International Trade and Investment Group, and she has been a visiting scholar at the central banks of Germany, Portugal, and France, and the Federal Reserve Banks of St. Louis and San Francisco. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the draft agreement emerging from the COP26 talks in Glasgow that climate activists are dismissing as a polite request. Oh, trains and boats and planes took you away But every time I see them I pray And if my prayer can cross the sea The trains and the boats and planes will bring you back Back home to me. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Gerard, a professor of professional practice at Columbia Law School, where he teaches courses on environmental law, climate change law, and energy regulation, and is the director of the Sabine Center for Climate Change Law. He also chairs the faculty of Columbia University's Earth Institute, and has written or edited 13 books, including Global Climate Change and U.S. Law, the leading work in its field, and the 12-volume Environmental Law Practice Guide. And his latest book is Legal Pathways to Deep Decarbonization in the United States. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Girard. Good talking to you. Well, thanks for joining us, Sir Michael. And what do you make of the draft agreement coming out of the COP26 climate talks? Obviously, there's still some time left. Uh, the negotiations will continue, I think, through the end of this week. But already, the climate activist community are suggesting that this is a polite request. So clearly underwhelmed. How does it strike you? Well, we had been hoping that the Glasgow conference would lead to a giant leap after Paris. This is more like a small hop. Uh, it has a lot of uh, rhetoric about hoping that countries will do more, uh, but it doesn't have firm commitments uh, and it has no enforcement mechanism, very little monitoring mechanism. So uh, I share the sense of being underwhelmed by where they are so far. They still have a, a few days to go, but where they are so far is not very ambitious. And when you hear talk of this catastrophic 2.4 degrees centigrade of warming by the end of the century, what does that mean? I mean, this means that the 1.5 centigrade is no longer a target, and if 2.4 is a target, we're in big trouble. 
Well, 1.5 is still a target, but we're not aiming the arrows in that direction. Uh, we're not doing nearly enough to uh, move down the, the curve of emissions. We've been talking about doing this for years, ever since uh, uh, the Kyoto Protocol back in 1997 countries realized we needed to do much, much more uh, uh, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and reduce fossil fuel use. Uh, but very few countries are anywhere near where they where we need to be. And the, the further along in time we get without sufficient progress, the steeper a downward curve would be required. So obviously not having China and Russia at this COP26 and along with Saudi Arabia didn't make a lot of sense. But clearly, Saudi Arabia, the Australian government, is also not particularly helpful. There's a bit of a paradox, isn't there, that President Biden today was talking at the uh, the port of Baltimore about the supply chain problems and the rising cost of food and gasoline. And gasoline prices are going up in part, I think, because the Saudi Arabians are not pumping more oil because, in fact, Biden in a recent CNN town hall indicated that his problems with Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, might have something to do with it. So when you have countries like Saudi Arabia that aren't cooperating and China and Russia that aren't cooperating, what's the answer here? My sense is that all of these countries on the planet should recognize that climate change is the greatest national security threat to them and that we should be working together because this is a common threat to, you know, we're all in lifeboat earth together. Is that? Do you think that kind of consciousness that awakening is possible well the we see the consciousness but it's not translating into action uh, partly because countries don't want to take the uh, political heat that would be involved with rising oil and gasoline prices um, uh, cutting back on on coal use there's a certain amount of pain that would be inflicted by doing this and if it's not done right it could hurt poor people the most. So what we need is is adjustments in the way that these costs are imposed, uh, uh, impose far fewer costs on poor people, impose far greater costs on the wealthy people who are the biggest consumers of fossil fuels and the biggest generators of greenhouse gases. But the political will to do that is absent almost everywhere. And that's why we're on the distressing curves that we're on. And what then do you think this final agreement will do from COP26? Inadequate as it appears to be, certainly the climate activist community is, um, feels it's too little too late. Well, I agree that what we see so far is too little too late. It's not the fault of the negotiators. The negotiators are acting on the instructions of their home governments, and very few of them have instructions that would allow them to go nearly as far. We are seeing encouraged develop, encouraging developments in terms of technological advancements that um, uh, wind and solar and storage and many of the other technologies that we really uh, need at a large scale are are developing uh, fairly quickly, but we need policies in place to encourage or even require their deployment at a large scale. If we were to do that, it would create a massive number of jobs, uh, create far more jobs than would be lost, and, and could give real hope to avoid some of the worst impacts of climate change. But so far, um, our political uh, leaders um, are not stepping up to the plate. Uh, they are constrained by their home politics. President Biden would like to do far more than his Congress will allow him to do. He's working hard, but under uh, severe constraints. And again, I'm speaking with Michael Gerard, who's a professor of professional practice at Columbia Law School. Where he teaches courses on environmental law, climate change law, and energy regulation, and is director of the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law. He also chairs the faculty of Columbia University's Earth Institute and has written or edited 13 books, including Global Climate Change and U.S. Law, the leading work in its field, and the 12-volume Environmental Law Practice Guide. And his latest book is Legal Pathways to Deep Decarbonization in the United States. But it seems to me that President Biden, who, again today speaking at the port of Baltimore, talked about the need to lower gas prices, uh, which would imply pumping more oil. But no politician is prepared to do what would, would make sense, surely. You know, you have sin taxes on tobacco, which has made cigarettes 
very expensive items. Most of that tax revenue goes to remediation from the health effects caused by nicotine, etc. And you would think that the most logical way to make this transition to electrical cars and electrical infrastructure, which is certainly the ambition of President Biden, would be to slap a tax on gasoline uh, and then to use that money to transition us into a clean energy economy. So is that just an impossible impasse, Michael? Uh, no, but I don't think that's the only way to achieve that objective. Uh, the um, Biden administration is moving to strengthen the fuel economy standards on automobiles, and that is uh, that was what President Obama did and, and doubled the fuel economy, greatly reducing um, gasoline use and uh, and greenhouse gas emissions, and the Biden administration is going to move uh, forward with that. So that can actually be a more reliable way to uh, reduce emissions, and and the uh, and the Biden administration is doing that. It's also um, uh, seeking and 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 has received some money from Congress to build up an electric vehicle charging infrastructure, uh, which is what we need for uh, conversion. So uh, gasoline taxes are one way to do it, but that's also a way of maximizing the political harm, tightening the fuel economy standards and the other standards that apply to these vehicles is also an effective way, and that they're actually doing. It, it'll take a few years, uh, but um, I think we're moving in the, in the right direction there. But meanwhile, you have a lot of pain that is experienced by people from high gasoline prices, and I don't think that trying to uh, ease the pain, the immediate pain of uh, high gasoline prices is necessarily inconsistent with the goal of making our cars a lot cleaner and transitioning as rapidly as possible to electric vehicles. So is there anything more that can be done? I mean, clearly Tesla did stimulate the rest of the car manufacturers. Some of them are still lagging, but Ford apparently is really making a massive investment. Again, today at the Port of Baltimore, President Biden reiterated that he's not going to raise taxes on anybody making under $400,000, and he's not going to raise gas taxes because that hits poor people more than wealthy people. And he made a strong pitch that the wealthiest people who've made billions and billions extra lately in this uh, COVID economy uh, ought to start paying their taxes, and uh, most of the top corporations aren't paying taxes at all. So he laid that out pretty clearly. So at the end of the day, then, are we to conclude, uh, Michael Gerard, that the marketplace is going to solve this? I mean, what can government do in terms of... Uh, no, uh, the marketplace... The alone will not solve this. The government can have tighter fuel economy standards. It can encourage, um, um, it can require procurement of electric vehicles. It can build out the electric vehicle infrastructure. It can help develop the battery technologies that are needed. There's a lot that government can do um, uh, that will not necessarily raise taxes on, uh, especially taxes on uh, low and middle income people. And that's what uh, President Biden is is trying to do. Most of the world's auto industry is moving in that direction, is moving toward electrification of their fleets. Uh, we also have to get rid of um, you know, the, the old clunkers that are around, and there are various things that the government can do to encourage that. So the fact that so much of this wrangling going on over the, these uh, infrastructure packages, both the bipartisan one, which is now passed, and then the social infrastructure package that is stalled, largely because of two senators, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. The fact that Manchin comes from, in fact, his family has a coal business, that he has been able to cut out a lot of these uh, clean initiatives out of this bill, is that just an anomaly? Is that kind of the last hurrah of the fossil fuel industry? Do you think that there's any rearguard action that the uh, fossil fuel companies can make to drag out this dirty economy before we really make this clean break? Yeah, I wish I could tell you that that was the last hurrah. Now, that, that is the last we'll see of this, but I can't tell you that. An awful lot will depend on what happens in the midterm election uh, uh, next year, and, you know, and, and the results of what just happened are not all that encouraging. Uh, so I don't think that uh, Senator Manchin is, an, is necessarily an anomaly. Um, and if the Republicans 
take control of the Senate next time, it's going to be, and or the House, it's going to be that much harder to get anything done. It's too early to tell what will happen next year. So just to try and end on a positive note here, Michael, the proposals to reduce methane by 30% by the end of the decade, that is very much a part of COP26. Russia, of course, is not participating, and there's massive amounts of methane coming from the melting permafrost. A lot of analysts say, well, that's a low-hanging fruit. That's something that's doable. It is about, what, 30% of all greenhouse gases. So do you feel like there's a possibility there that that step may bring about a reduction in uh, global warming? Uh, Certainly in some countries. And the Biden administration just announced uh, new regulations, new proposed regulations on methane, which is a major step in the right direction. Uh, Russia is a real laggard. As as you say, there are a lot of uncontrolled leaks in Russia. And it's going to be very hard to get to where we need to be unless Russia and the rest of the world really step up and move significantly to slash their methane emissions. And I don't know whether that's going to happen. President Putin um, made a statement a while ago that he believes in climate change, uh, climate change is happening and humans cause it and they need to do something. But he's not doing a lot to act on that. And, of course, methane also comes from wetlands, from rice paddies and uh, from fracking and from the gas stove in your home uh, along with agriculture as well, cattle. So there's a lot there to uh, deal with. So um, we have our work cut out. And just in closing, is there any, as underwhelmed as you appear to be and most, uh, certainly the climate activists appear to be, anything that's going to jolt us to meet this incredibly existential threat to life on this planet, which is what President Biden has described climate change as? We're seeing a remarkable stirring of youth activism. As strong as it was a couple years ago, it seems to be even stronger now. And to the extent that uh, governments are at all responsive to this and to the uh, loud voices of the uh, coming generations, that could have an impact. Well, Marcus Rod, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Gerard, who's a professor of professional practice at Columbia Law School, where he teaches courses on environmental law, climate change law, and energy regulation, and is the director of the Sabian Center for Climate Change Law. He also chairs the faculty of Columbia University's Earth Institute, and has written or edited 13 books, including Global Climate Change and U.S. Law, the leading work in its field, and the 12-volume Environmental Law Practice Guide. And his latest book is Legal Pathways to Deep Decarbonization in the United States. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into how prosecutors around the country are now seeking murder charges for fentanyl deaths, targeting dealers selling fentanyl-laced counterfeit pills on Snapchat and Instagram to teenagers who are dying in droves. Excuse me, mister, but is a natural oil in the sea and the pollution in the air, mister? Whose could that be? So Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sam Quinones, who's a journalist, author, and storyteller, whose two acclaimed books of narrative nonfiction about Mexico and Mexican immigration, True Tales from Another Mexico, and Antonio's Gun and Delfino's Dream, made him, according to the San Francisco Chronicle Book Review, the most original writer on Mexico and the border. His books include Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic, And his latest book is The Least of Us, True Tales of America, Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sam Kenyunas. Thanks very much, Ian. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And the Los Angeles Times on Wednesday is carrying a front page story. Prosecutors seek murder charges in fentanyl deaths. There is pushback in the legal community against national drive to target drug dealers. So what's your sense then of whether that has some possibilities since your book has revealed the extraordinary extent to which the opiate epidemic has now morphed into a fentanyl epidemic. And since fentanyl is so lethal, there is an extraordinary number of 
people dying in this country. According to the California Department of Public Health, California saw 3,857 deaths related to fentanyl overdoses in 2020 compared to 239 in 2016. So if you, uh, right. if you spread that nationwide, it's pretty horrific. Oh, it's much worse than other parts of the country, in fact. But, yeah, my, my sense is that these are uh, prosecutors who are doing what, what it was in their uh, capacity uh, uh, to do. I think it's helpful to think of this as much as a drug addiction problem as a kind of a, a national poisoning, really. I mean, I think that's kind of not, not too far-fetched, really, that that's what's going on here, that these drugs are coming in, and the, and the, uh, the, the, the effect is to be killing systematically Lots, lots of Americans. I would say that in my experience, hearing people from the street, uh, people, uh, narcotics agents who listen to wires a lot, that kind of thing, that it's only when you get those kinds of cases being brought that dealers will step away uh, from, from using fentanyl. The reason is um, fentanyl is very intoxicating financially. Uh, to, 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 to drug dealers. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's going to make a lot of money ma- uh, doing it. You get repeat customers where you used to sell cocaine, where if you sell cocaine with fentanyl in it, all of a sudden um, that person is now an opioid addict and has to come back to you every single day. And this is happening all across the street, in, in, uh, all across the country, rather, in, uh, in, uh, in Venice Beach. Remember the case a couple months ago of three comics who died at a party because they were snorting cocaine and within it was, was fentanyl. So it's very difficult to get, get dealers to step away from this idea. <clears throat> and I think the, one, the times that I have heard of people uh, having second thoughts are when they're concerned about uh, catching a body, so to speak, that they, that they don't want to be tagged with uh, having, having sold something that killed somebody. So I think it's, it's a sign of the times of how severe the problem is. Um, I don't think it's, it's uh, uh, too excessive. I think it's the, uh, a way of, of moving forward to kind of try to convince people that this financial uh, motivation is maybe not the only thing they ought to be worried about. Well, the Orange County District Attorney Todd Spitzer, apparently, he's motivated uh, by parents, Amy Neville uh, of Elisa Vallejo, whose 14-year-old son took a single pill he bought off Snapchat, right. and Alexander... Yep. Perish just as he's graduating middle middle school with his uh, skateboard, you know, with right. his whole life ahead of him. Spitzer's now saying these are not overdoses; these are murders. And prosecutors in Riverside and San Bernardino counties are also charging drug dealers with homicide, as are prosecutors in Las Vegas and Maryland and other states. So, do you think this is going to be backed up by state legislatures? Because you know the L.A. District Attorney. Gascon, he's not going along with this, and apparently there's a sense that the legislatures have to step in here. Yeah, I, I would say that, that legislatures in other states have done that. Uh, I confess I don't know the laws um, uh, precisely on what that, what, what that would entail in California, but um, yeah, frequently that's what has to happen. They have to kind of uh, do some, some modification of the laws. I think, I think there's a lot of that. I mean, this is the other issue, what you just mentioned of that young man uh, dying like that. This is how um, drug traffickers, it's a fascinating thing, with fentanyl made in this catastrophic supplies that it's being made down in Mexico, along, of course, with the methamphetamine, similarly catastrophic supplies. They have resolved the main dilemma that always faced drug dealers, and that is, where do I get my supply? Where do I get my dope? My dealer, just, my connection just got arrested or was killed or something, and now where do I get it? It was a constant worry this, the massive supplies have ended that worry, have resolved that dilemma. Now the big question is, where do I sell it? To whom? Do, or how do I find the, my, my customers for all this stuff that I can get my hands on now? Uh, small timers are now able to get pounds of this, of this stuff or, or hundreds of thousands, maybe thousands of, 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 of these uh, counterfeit pills that contain fentanyl. One of the places that, the, that they are finding that they're very lucrative to sell these pills, particularly the pills, the counterfeit pills that look like Xanax or Percocets or whatever, is on Snapchat, on TikTok, on uh, Instagram. These are the new street corners, and particularly uh, vulnerable are kids, like the, the middle schooler, the high schooler that you, you, you mentioned, who don't really have much uh, experience in the drug world, don't really know what they're doing, but they're online during COVID particularly, all 
uh, you know, all the all day long. In in June, I went to a protest in Santa Monica by parents in front of Snapchat headquarters with signs saying Snapchat is complicit in the murder of my my 17 year old son, my 19 year old daughter, whatever it happened happened to be. But this is a way people now are also dying. These are folks who are not involved in the drug world to, to any great degree most of the time, and it's and they're being sold to. Um, uh, by folks who themselves are not much older, you know, they're they're guys who in in uh, in, uh, in uh, uh, Fresno talking with a cop up there, a narcotics agent up there. He was saying, "Geez, you know, uh, 75 percent of our overdose deaths now are are from this, and most of them are coming from sales of these pills on 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 social media sites, the new street corner, effectively." And again, I'm speaking with Sam Quinones, a journalist, author, and storyteller whose two acclaimed books of narrative nonfiction about Mexico and Mexican immigration, True Tales from Another Mexico and Antonio's Gun and Delfino's Dream, made him, according to the San Francisco Chronicle Book Review, the most original writer on Mexico and the border. His books include Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic, and his latest book just out is The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. So... I mean, your book really lays this out. And this is a whole new era. The synthetic drug era is the way you describe it. And that fentanyl has been a blessing for dealers because they don't have to worry about growing opium or marijuana or whatever. They don't have to worry about climate and cops and whatever, helicopters, infrared and all the the stuff that the DEA has employed in places like Colombia. All they have to do is control the ports where the world chemical right. market comes in through the supply chain. And that's what's going on, isn't it? So yes. you're basically arguing here that drugs can now be made year-round in supplies limited only by traffickers' access to the precursor chemicals. Precisely. And they learned that lesson first with methamphetamine in the 90s uh, in Mexico, they uh, they ran out. You remember? Uh, you may remember in the in the in the sixties, seventies, and eighties, the the main methamphetamine producers were biker gangs, but Hell's Angels. They made a form of methamphetamine that was very smelly and inefficient, and had to do it out in the middle of the nowhere. They weren't, weren't very good at it either, by and large. Uh, the Mexicans came along. They find a new way of making methamphetamine using a, a chemical. Uh, it's actually an old way, but they rediscover it. Uh, a chemical known as ephedrine. And they uh, industrialized, make it very efficient. And they were the first ones, that, that generation of traffickers in the 90s, really, were the first ones to realize, gee, it's so much better. And if we could make these drugs in a lab, again, we don't need, yeah, as you say, no need land. We don't need sunshine. We don't need uh, uh, irrigation. <laughs> you don't need any of that. And it's limited only by the supply of chemicals that you, come up, that you can um, uh, come up with. Meth taught them that. And then in the middle of their response to our opioid epidemic, which all of a sudden was igniting a whole new, creating a whole new population of opioid addicts coast to coast, which we had not had before doctors and pharma companies began uh, promoting these these narcotic painkillers as if they're aspirin solution for almost every kind of pain we, we might possibly have. We create this enormous new population of opioid addicted folks. And along the way, um, we have we, uh, the, the, uh, the Mexican trafficking world uh, uh, responds and says, OK, let's start. They start selling heroin, of course, because that's the first impulse. That's what they know to grow. And then along the way, in a, in a story I tell in the book, in the least of us, they uh, discover or are clued into uh, this thing called fentanyl that they've never heard of before. The Sinaloa drug cartel in particular figures this out due to a, an underground chemist that they have employed. He tells them about it. And they and this is the the light goes on and bing they go oh this is just like we can make this indoors we don't need to grow poppies and so the, and and all we need is control of the ports which they have there are some ports uh, two ports on the Pacific coast of Mexico one is in Colima the other is in Michoacan and they control the flow of chemicals through those ports and therefore they can make this stuff in 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 quantities that stagger even the most cynical narcotic agents mind. I mean, just stunning amounts of quantity. And the supply is the story here. The supply is changing everything about these drugs. You never thought of mixing one drug into another before fentanyl, but fentanyl in, in the enormous supplies that's coming in, 
allowing us to dealers on the streets to say, wow, I could boost my heroin, which is kind of weak. I could boost my heroin with this stuff. I could boost my cocaine uh, with this stuff. I could then create a new opioid addict from a cocaine customer by just boosting it and giving a few, a few, a few doses of my cocaine will make that guy into an opioid addict. And he'll have to buy from me every single day. Will traffickers and dealers on the street understand this enormous benefit of these new drugs, these new synthetic drugs, and they're employing them like that. Well, when you talk about the, the, these two ports in Mexico through which the precursor chemicals come to the cartels and then sell them and, on Snapchat, you know, by the way, that's a whole other story that we should also get into, Sam, because, you know, all this talk about Facebook's taking responsibility for hate speech on, online, that pales compared to the fact that Snapchat and Instagram being used by kids to buy drugs openly. Right. I mean, yep. they, they're the new oh. electronic street corner, as you just coined that phrase. Exactly. So, so but, but let me ask yeah. you, though, about the, where these chemicals are coming from, these precursors. I understood that China has been the source of fentanyl. Now, apparently, yeah. after a lot of efforts on the part of the U.S. government, the Chinese are, are moving to stop the manufacture of fentanyl in China. But, of course, now it's being made in Mexico. But I don't imagine they're really stopping the precursors, the chemicals. No, so where do the chemicals come happening. from? The chemicals come from, well, the chemicals can come from all over the world. I mean, now, uh, but certainly they're coming from China. Um, and uh, Chinese government uh, uh, put, a, put an end to fentanyl um, uh, being, being produced by most companies in that country. Now, my understanding is there's only a few company, chemical companies licensed to produce it. Um, but the, the precursors now, they, they don't control the field. They can't control whatever the case. Uh, these things, and so now those chem- the 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 uh, the uh, uh, Mexican trafficking world is is a major client of that. They they buy that stuff and they bring it in because now uh, over the last few years they have learned and that the, that knowledge has spread because it's not really a there's not a board of directors here. There's not like some massive structure. It's really a very very fluid, uh, wide, diffuse. Um, uh, a world of drug trafficking and drug production down there. The, the knowledge is spread. People know how to make it and can see absolutely the profit uh, that, that can be obtained. And so now they're going with it. Um, and so that, that is um, another reason why uh, this, these supplies have reached such colossal amounts. It probably could not have reached, wasn't reaching anyway, these colossal amounts while it was just Chinese companies mailing this stuff across. The, the, the world to the United States. Far, far more efficient is coming through our border entries in Tijuana, San Diego, or Juarez, El Paso, or one of those places in trucks that are carrying other quantities. You won't get to the supplies that we have today by mailing it through the mails. I just don't think that that's a reasonable idea. So it's really attained this kind of supply because it's coming up from Mexico right on our, our flank and through these border walls, basically. So just in the last few minutes, uh, along with this hideous situation, which, as we mentioned, some prosecutors in the country now are charging drug dealers who sell fentanyl-laced counterfeit pills to teenage kids who are dying in huge numbers, and Snapchat and Instagram and these other social media platforms are literally becoming the drug pushes on the street corner and that should be obviously be addressed and i don't know the interdiction part that the dea's in I mean, we've always had this war on drugs and nobody's ever can ever make a case that it's been successful and fentanyl of course is such highly concentrated i believe a trunk load of fentanyl is enough to kill everybody in america so mm-hmm. this is the reality of it and 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 you can also blame the Sacklers, the Purdue Pharma family. They, by starting the opioid epidemic through OxyContin, they've essentially created the gateway drug for fentanyl. But let's just yep. talk a little bit about the methamphetamine epidemic. I didn't realize this until I read your book, Sam, The Least of Us, and that is that the methamphetamine now coming from Mexico is causing a schizophrenia, and, and it's absolutely yeah. devastating the homeless population in this country, which is increasing, full of mentally ill people who have been unhinged by meth addiction. Let, let me say this, Ian. I want to say this uh, uh, carefully. I'm not exactly sure 
the neuroscience of what is happening. What I do know is that street reporting, my street reporting, uh, uh, um, uh, has shown that uh, that this is absolutely accompanied. The, these symptoms of schizophrenia, these symptoms of, of uh, paranoia and, and hallucinations are now absolutely accompanied by this meth as it's marched across the country. And this, this meth turns people, seems to turn people um, crazy very, very quickly. It's not the meth that was made uh, when they industri- industrialized methamphetamine in Mexico uh, years ago with ephedrine, which was a party drug. It was a very you know, uh, uh, you want to be around people. This drug is a very silent, solitary, uh, sinister kind of thing that, that turns you inward. Uh, you don't want to be around people anymore. You want to be alone with your own brain and the conspiracies that, that you're imagining and the horrible hallucinations that you're. And also, I would say this, that that this is where our tent encampments largely come from as well, that that, that methamphetamine is um, is tailor made, tents are tailor made. For this methamphetamine, it's a perfect lodging. If you cannot really function among other people, if you can't hold down an apartment, if you're out of your mind and there's no way you can hold a job, and what's more, you can't really function in a homeless shelter either because that's even more scary than any other living arrangement you could imagine. The tent is the perfect place for you because it's a little pod, a safe pod away from the dangers and the scariness of the world that's out there that meth has created for you. And this is what we have seen. It's a remarkable thing to watch as the meth begins to march in these staggering quantities, first on the West Coast in um, LA and Vegas and Seattle and Portland, et cetera, all those places, all across the country, hits Denver, hits crosses the Mississippi in about 2016 and 17. They begin to see widespread homelessness in those areas too. And I've got three chapters in The Least of Us that are about this small town in West Virginia, never had any homelessness. And all of a sudden people are wandering around out of their minds as soon as this meth meth shows up. And in 2019, it makes its way up into uh, Vermont and New Hampshire. And the same thing you see all across the country when this st- stuff arrives is that people losing all mental balance uh, out of their minds, terrified about who might be uh, after them to kill them. They, I want to stress there is no neuroscience. There is no journal studies. There are no mice or rat studies on this. This is, uh, uh, I believe, kind of me breaking this story. Nobody else has written this story so far. Um, but it absolutely stands up as you talk to people. When did the mess show up in your area? When did you begin to see this? Everybody will, people will tell you the same story over and over. And as they told me, the same story over and over from L.A. to Tennessee to West Virginia to rural Indiana, Albuquerque, Portland, on and on, places like this. The story is the same, and it's what we're seeing in L.A. in very, very concentrated, intense, scary ways. And it's what we're seeing perhaps less intensely in, in places like rural Indiana, central uh, rural uh, Oregon or, or West Virginia. Say. But the, the fact is that this is uh, very, very much accompanied by by this method is very much accompanied by this very scary mental illness and very quickly homelessness and uh, soon tent encampments. Well, Sam Quinones, I thank you so much for the work that you've done and for your new book, The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. Great to be with you, Ian. Thanks, uh, thanks for giving me a call. And again, I've been speaking with Sam Quinones, who's an author and storyteller, whose two acclaimed books of narrative nonfiction about Mexico and Mexican immigration, True Tales from Another Mexico, and Antonio's Gun and Delfino's Dream, made him, according to the San Francisco Chronicle Book Review, the most original writer on Mexico and the border. His books include Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic, and his latest book just out is The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Martin Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our non-profit 
Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now.